Open our Bibles this evening. Genesis chapter 6. Uh, nursery this evening, if, if there's any need for it. I don't know whether there is or not. If there's a need, they can head into the back room there, I guess. Um, someone can organise that uh, tonight. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6. And <clears throat> Okay, so Megan's going to take the, the little ones. Thanks, Megan. Right, Genesis chapter 6 this evening. And let's just read from verse 1. It says, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And let's just open our time with a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we well, thank you, Lord, that we can gather in your word again this evening. Lord, we pray as we consider this passage here in Genesis chapter 6, Lord, I pray that you will give me wisdom and guidance that only you can give. Lord, I pray that this evening you would empower me through the Spirit, and that, Lord, it would be uh, your words and your thoughts, Lord. Uh, may, Lord, we uh, gain an insight into a, a difficult passage this evening. I pray that you would help me as I present it this evening, and that, Lord, you would be honored and glorified through it all. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, when... Chapter 6 begins, uh, we find that the, the moral and spiritual condition of the pre-flood world is uh, drastically deteriorating. It's on a downward trajectory, isn't it? Okay, since Adam and Eve were created, things have been getting progressively worse, and we saw that again this morning as well. <clears throat> you know, not just the descendants of Cain are in sin and wickedness, but now the descendants of Seth as well. Okay, as we talked about this morning, those in chapter 5, they're just the 10 patriarchs. There's plenty more on Seth's side who are not living for the Lord. There's plenty more who uh, perish in the flood. Okay, because Noah and his family are the only ones who are spared. And so it's not just Cain, okay? It's Seth's descendants as well. They're all turning away from God. Materialism, ungodliness abounds. And a godly, rem- godly remnant sorry, remains, but it's becoming smaller and smaller this godly remnant, to the point where, of course, it ends up being Noah and his family. Morris writes this, he says, this, uh, sorry, the sin disease which began when Eve was tempted to doubt the word of God, which then began to show its true ugliness of character in the life of Cain, which came to maturity in the godless civilization developed by his descendants, finally descended into such a terrible morass of wickedness and corruption that only a global bath of water from the windows of heaven could purge and cleanse the fervid earth. That sums it up well, that downward trajectory. Everything's been getting worse to the point now where God needs to deal with it. Wickedness has been escalating and the world is rushing headlong towards the judgment of God. And the final straw, the final event, if you like, which leads to a 
a final tidal wave of violence, a final tidal wave of wickedness is recorded for us here in Genesis chapter 6. As we just read, we find this strange passage where the sons of God see the daughters of men and they take them as their wives and the children that result from these unions are giants in the earth. They're monsters not only in size but also about here this evening and so uh, trust it's a blessing (laughs) and and you're able to follow along but first of all this evening let's consider who were the sons of God I think that's the first thing we need to look at who were the sons of God let's just read again verse 1 it says and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And we read this passage describing here this union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. The immediate question that we uh, need to try and find an answer to is who are the sons of God? Who's it talking about here? Who are these ones who see the daughters of men and marry them and these giants result from the union? Who are these sons of God? And this is indeed a strange account. It's a strange account, a strange passage with seemingly strange results. And because of this, there are many who immediately attempt to make the story more intellectually palatable. Okay? In other words, what they do is they take the supernatural out of it and make it a natural event. They try and reduce it down to something that we can understand in our human terms. That's more palatable to us. And so what they do is they explain the sons of God here as simply being uh, descendants of Seth, okay? that they are the sons of Seth. And they say the daughters of men here are women from the line of Cain. And so what they do is they make this, this explanation here, makes this account simply a record of intermarriage between Seth and, his, uh, Seth and the descendants of Cain. Is the mic not working or something to them? Is it right? It is right? Okay, I'm getting... <laughs> okay, alright. Sorry, people at home weren't hearing that. Sorry. Um, okay, so they make it into this simply an intermarriage between the, the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. That There's this intermarriage going on. The, the godly men are marrying ungodly women. The wall of separation between unbelievers and believers, was broken down. That's what they turn this into. That's how they explain this. Okay? And as I said, that they do this. This interpretation appeals to many because of the fact that it takes the supernatural out of it. Okay? It takes the supernatural out of it, and it, it makes it into something more easy to understand. Okay? But there are, however, some things that simply do not add up 
if we explain it this way. There's some things that simply do not add up with this interpretation. And first of all, this naturalistic interpretation does not explain why the children from these unions end up being giants. Okay? It doesn't give us an explanation for that. It doesn't explain to us why they led to a universal corruption and wickedness and violence in the earth. Okay? Let's just read again from verse 3. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And then verse 5, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so there's this degeneration that happens. And it hinges on this, this event that takes place here. Okay? And these giants are born. And so if we just take this naturalistic interpretation, the sons of Seth marrying the daughters of Cain, it doesn't explain this. It doesn't make sense. Why does this occur? Why do these giants appear? Why does it lead, lead to this level of corruption and wickedness? You see, the point is there's something unique here. There's something unique that takes place. There's something unique about their children, and we can't simply explain it away. The second thing that doesn't add up here is, if this is the meaning, okay, if it is simply the sons of Seth marrying the daughters of Cain, why does the writer not simply say that? Okay, why doesn't he say that? Why doesn't the writer, which of course is Moses, why doesn't he simply write here the sons of Seth? Why does he call them the sons of God? Because if, if he's talking about the sons of Seth and he calls them the sons of God here, that implies that they're all godly men, doesn't it? Okay, it implies that they're all godly men because that's how that term is used about us in the New Testament. Okay, If you want to look for somewhere it's talking about men, it's in the New Testament, it's talking about saved believers. Okay, And so if that title, sons of God, is used to talk about the sons of Seth, it's saying they're all godly men, but they weren't. If they were, they wouldn't have all perished in the flood apart from Noah. Okay, so this title doesn't work. It doesn't apply. Why should they be called the sons of God? The other thing that you need to ask there is, why is it a one-way relationship there? Why doesn't he talk about the daughters of God and the sons of men? You know, is there a marriage going on that way as well? That's not talked about, okay? It just doesn't fit with the passage. And then finally, we must ask the question, if this is the correct interpretation... Why did these unions, these marriages, make God so angry that he wiped out almost all of the earth's population? You know, this, is, this is really the final straw, okay? leading up to God wiping out everything and only Noah and his family is left. Why does this lead to this? See, the point is that this interpretation, this naturalistic one, although it is palatable, it's easier to understand, it's easier to except in some ways, it doesn't actually fit the passage. Okay? It does violence to the word of God to make it fit. Instead of taking God's word at face value, we're trying to add things there that aren't there. Morris writes this, he says, This naturalistic interpretation is so forced and awkward 
that it seems to do disservice to the doctrine of divine inspiration to suppose that this is really what the writer meant to say. It does. It does. It forces it. It's awkward and it, and it does disservice to the thing we believe, divine inspiration. God's words given to us by divine inspiration. It's written as God intended. Okay, basically, otherwise we've got to say, well, what he meant to say was this. Okay, and we're taking that away, aren't we? Okay. And so obviously I don't believe the naturalistic interpretation. Okay. And obviously the interpretation of this passage hinges on us identifying the sons of God. And so instead of just making it apply to the children of Seth, we need to look at the word of God and we need to look for places where this phrase is used in the Old Testament so we can determine its meaning, this meaning of sons of God. You see, this Hebrew phrase translated sons of God here in Genesis chapter 6 is used only three other times in the Old Testament, only three times. And all three of those are found in the book of Job, which is one of the most ancient books. The book of Job. Let's go and look at them. Job chapter 1. I'm sure we know these verses. Job chapter 1 and verse 6. It says this. Job 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord... And Satan came also among them. There's no doubt. It's talking about angels. In chapter 2, verse 1. Job chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Again, it's clearly talking about angels gathering before the Lord here. And then in Job chapter 38, the final one, Job 38, verse Seven. Job 38 verse 7 says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And again, the context is talking about angels. The point is, these are the only three occur- uh, occurrences of this phrase outside of Genesis chapter 6. And all three of them are referring to angels. All three. And there is... A similar phrase used in Psalms, Psalm 29 verse 1 and Psalm 86, uh, sorry, 89 verse 6. And that phrase is the sons of the mighty. And again, the reference in both those passages is to angels. And so the point is that when we consider the use of this phrase in the Old Testament, it's always used to speak about angels. Always. It's always used. To speak about angels. And there seems to be no reason then for us to interpret Genesis chapter 6 in any other way. Okay? As we said, in the Old Testament, it clearly is talking about angels in these other passages. So there's no reason for us to then in Genesis 6 go, well, we'll talk about it in some other way. We'll interpret it differently. It seems clear that the writer's intent was to convey the thought of angels here in Genesis chapter 6. And of course, in particular, we're talking about fallen angels, aren't we? Okay, fallen angels because they're doing something contrary to God's will. Okay, they're not acting in obedience. Okay, and so let's talk about fallen angels in particular. You know, to back up this interpretation, we find that this was the meaning placed on the passage by the Greek translators of the Septuagint. Okay, the Septuagint, if you 
don't know is the Greek, the early Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's the translation that was in common use in Christ's day. Okay, when you're reading the New Testament and you see the Lord Jesus Christ quote from the Old Testament, it's most most likely a quote from the Septuagint. That's what he was reading. That's what Christ was quoting from during his day. And this is significant because in the Septuagint, when you read Genesis chapter 6, what it says is the angels of God. It doesn't say the sons of God. It says the angels of God. You see, the point is they understood what it was saying. They understood what it meant and they translated it as such. And this is the way that Christ would have read it and indeed the apostles would have read it when they opened up the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. This was also the understanding of Josephus. You know him, he's the Jewish historian. This is how he understood Genesis chapter 6. Indeed, all the other ancient Jewish interpreters, I say ancient because modern ones have different views, but the ancient Jewish interpreters, they all understood it as angels here in Genesis 6. And indeed, all the early writers, or majority of the early writers, Christian writers that is, understood Genesis 6 as being angels angels. And so you've got all this evidence, you've got all this weight on the side of Genesis 6 being fallen angels. And then to go with that, we have the apocryphal book of Enoch. Now when I say it's apocryphal, that means it's not actually inspired, it's not part of the inspired word of God. That's why we don't have the book of Enoch in our Bibles. Okay, And so we shouldn't take everything that's written in the book of Enoch as being truth. But this book was extant, it was readily available during Christ's day, and it's from this book that Jude took his information concerning Enoch's prophecy. Okay, Jude chapter, Jude, no chapter, but Jude verse 14, as we read this morning, let's just go there. Remember from this morning... Jude verse 14 says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is a quote from the book of Enoch. Okay, Jude uh, quotes that book, and so while not the whole book is inspired, obviously this part definitely is truth, okay? which is why Jude puts it in. Okay? My point is, but elsewhere in the book of Enoch, okay, we find a description of Genesis chapter 6. Okay? And this is what it says. Okay? It says, And it came to pass, that the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, And said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. They took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go unto them, and defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants. And there arose much godliness, a godlessness, sorry. And they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. Now, as I said, the book of Enoch is not inspired, but it does show clearly what the ancient understanding of Genesis 6 was. Okay? This is an ancient writer, okay? and his understanding of Genesis 6 
was clear that it's angels. The sons of God is talking about fallen angels here. And so you've got all this evidence, you've got all that weight from external sources all landing on the side of angels. And if that's not enough, we then have to support this position. In the New Testament, we have two passages that speak about fallen angels who did something so terrible that God has locked them up in chains awaiting judgment. Let's just read those two passages. The first is found in Jude. Jude in verse 6. Book of Jude, verse 6. It says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now Jude, verse 6 in particular, he speaks about these angels which kept not their first estate, left their habitation. And Jude tells us that these angels have been chained up and that they are awaiting judgment from God. And in verse 7, as we just read, their sin is compared to who? Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, It says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication. Okay, The sin of these angels is compared to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was a sexual perversion, wasn't it? Homosexuality. Sexual perversion. And so it would seem that the sin of these fallen angels was a sexual perversion of some kind. Okay, It was in like manner to what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the other passage in the New Testament is 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. It says this, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And so again, Peter talks about angels that have sinned, And they are imprisoned in hell, awaiting the judgments. And again, the context of this verse is very interesting. Because in the very next verse, what do we read? Verse 5, straight after he talks about these angels in judgment, okay, in chains, sorry, waiting judgment. Verse 5, it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Straight after. Peter talks about these angels that have been locked up for something they did that was terrible, sinful, wicked. Straight after, he talks about Noah and the flood. Well, that suggests to me that this occurred before the flood. This occurred before the flood, and the flood was after this event. And so it's clear from these two passages in the New Testament, Jude and 2 Peter, that there are a group of fallen angels who added to their original sin. Okay, They, fo- they followed Satan in rebelling against God, but they added to that or compounded upon that by leaving their own habitation, as Jude says, keeping not their first estate, and they did something so terrible that God has confined them to chains of darkness. The point is that they're not free to roam around. Satan and his, his fallen angels, most of them, they're, they're roaming around even now. They influence men. 
They are free, but these ones, they're not. They're locked up. They have no freedom. And the only explanation from the Word of God that we can find that fits Second Peter and fits with Jude is Genesis chapter 6. It's the only place that gives you an answer to those two passages. And the point is that all of this, and I hope I've given enough evidence, but all of this means to me the best interpretation of Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, is that they are fallen angels. I hope that's given us an idea of who they are. And that means that now, secondly, we can talk about what they did. What they did. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6 again. Let's read verse 2. It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And then verse 4 says, There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And so now, secondly, let's consider what they did. Okay, we've identified who they are. They're fallen angels. Now let's look at what they did. In verse 2, we're told that they took them wives from all which they chose from the daughters of men. In verse 4, we're told that as a result of these unions, their children were giants, men of renown. And so it would seem that these fallen angels endeavoured now to pollute the human race, to pollute the human gene pool, to corrupt humanity so much that the promised seed couldn't come. You know, we remember here the promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. Okay, let's go back there. Genesis 3, verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The promise was that the seed of the woman was going to come and crush the head of Satan, defeat Satan once and for all. And what we see here in Genesis 6 is these fallen angels attempting to disrupt that, attempting to stop that from happening, attempting to corrupt the gene pool, corrupt humanity so much that this is not possible. And this helps us to understand why God goes to such drastic measures in wiping the earth clean with the flood. Helps us understand why he starts again. Why there's there's the severity of judgment there. The wickedness has gone so far. It's it's permeated all of humanity. And God effectively starts again with Noah. And so from these unholy unions, we have these unholy offspring. And this is where it's difficult. How is this possible? How is this possible? How is it possible for angels, fallen angels, to have relations with human women and produce offspring? How is this possible? And it's for this reason that many have a hard time accepting that Genesis chapter 6 is talking about fallen angels. It's for this reason many want to just go with the naturalistic interpretation because this is hard. This is difficult. You know, they object by saying it's impossible for this to occur. It's impossible for angels to have relations with human women and father children by them. And some have pointed to Matthew 22, verse 30, as evidence that angels are sexless beings. In other words, they don't have a gender. Well, let's go there, Matthew 22. 
Matthew 22 and verse 30. In Matthew 22 verse 30 it says this, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the children of God in heaven. So Christ here states that the angels of God in heaven do not get married. Okay, they don't have, they're not given in marriage, they don't get married. But this is not the same as saying that they're sexless creatures, is it? It's not the same as saying that they're genderless beings. Okay, it just says that they don't get married like we do. That's all it's saying. Okay, it's not saying that they're sexless, or is it saying that those cast out of heaven were incapable of getting married? Okay, it doesn't say that. It simply says in heaven the angels are not given in marriage or marry. Okay, that's what it says there. And so it's jumping to conclusions, isn't it? It's taking more than what the Word of God says. And on this, uh, Morris makes a good point. He says the, this objection presupposes more about angelic abilities than we know. Whenever angels have appeared visibly to men, as recorded in the Bible, they have appeared in the physical bodies of men. Those who met with Abraham, for example, actually ate with him. Genesis 18, verse 8. Also, the writer of Hebrews suggests that on various occasions, some have entertained angels unawares. Hebrews 13, verse 2. You see, the point is that right throughout the Word of God, we see angels appearing in the, the bodily form of what? A man. Okay, right throughout the Word of God. Okay, somehow God has given them this ability. God has given them the capacity to, in the right time, at the right moments, for the right reason, take masculine human form when the occasion warrants. And what they're able to do in that bodily form we cannot state with any certainty. Okay, I just talked about the fact that Abraham, when he met with those angels, they ate the food with him. Okay, so obviously had a, a body you could touch and feel, and they ate food. In Hebrews, it says that people have sorry have entertained angels unawares, so they obviously look no different than any other man. They're exactly the same, entertaining them the same as anyone else. You see, the point is we can't say with any certainty what angels in human form can or cannot do. Now, it's clearly not God's will. It's clearly not God's intention that angels mix with man in such a way, okay, with human women. But these wicked angels are not concerned with God's will, are they? And you've got to remember that. They're not concerned with what God wants. They are actively here trying to stop God's will. They're trying to stop God's plan. They're working against God. And so there is at least the possibility that these angels, these fallen angels, were able to so assume a human form that they were able to have relations with human women and produce these offspring. We have to accept that that is a possibility. The other possibility, and perhaps more likely, is that they simply indwelt the body of human men to accomplish their purposes. Okay, and that's a, another one that a lot of people hold to. It's still talking about fallen angels. Okay, but perhaps they indwelt men and so controlled them, so used them to accomplish their purposes here on earth. Morris writes this. He says a solution, <clears throat> see, sorry, a solution seems to consist 
in recognising that the children were true human children of truly human fathers and mothers, but that all were possessed and controlled by evil spirits. That is, these fallen angelic sons of God accomplished their purposes by something equivalent to demon possession, indwelling the bodies of human men and then also taking the bodies of the women as well. Thus, the sons of God controlled not only the men whose bodies they had acquired for their own exploitation, but also the women they took to themselves in this way and then all the children they bore. And so there is that explanation as well, that they indwelt these men and so used them, so controlled them and the women and the children, the offspring of them. There's that explanation as well. Now we can sit here and reason as to which one's best. You know, did they take human form so completely that they could do this? Or did they just possess someone? We can sit and reason about that all night. But the reality is that we are not told in the word of God. Okay? We are simply told that the sons of God did this. These fallen angels did this. We don't know enough about angels to be dogmatic about this either way. We don't know enough to say what they can and cannot do. All we can do is take God's word at face value. And I think that's the most important thing. We take God's word at face value and we understand by faith that this happened. Don't explain it away just because it's a supernatural natural event that we can't understand. No, it's in God's word. It happened. And we need to accept it by faith, believe it by faith. And that brings us now lastly to the result of these actions, the result of these unions. Let's go back to Genesis 6 and verse 4. It says there were giants in the earth in those days and after that, Sorry, and also after that, when the sons of God <clears throat> came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. The results. Now we've already alluded to this result, okay, on numerous of times. Uh, times, sorry, tonight I've talked about the fact that giants were the result. Okay, uh, the result of these unions were that the children became giants, men of men of uh, old, mighty men. Sorry men of renown. But let's just talk about this result. Let's try and understand it a little bit here. The word translated giants here in Genesis chapter 6 is the Hebrew word Nephilim. And it comes from the verb Nephal, which means fall. And so the, the most natural and probably best meaning of this word Nephilim is those, sorry, those who have fallen. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Those who have fallen. That's probably a reference to where they came from. Okay, the, the, the influence of these fallen angels. They are the offspring of the fallen. Okay, and that's why they're called those who have fallen. And the word Nephilim also came to mean giants and was applied to the giants when the Israelite spies went into the land of Canaan and they saw the giants, they called them Nephilim. Okay, and it's talking about people of abnormal size and stature. It's talking about giants, as we understand that word in the English. The translators of the Septuagint, they understood it this way. Okay, when you read the Greek in the Old Testament there, they use the word gigantes. Pretty simple. It's the word giants. Okay, that's the word they used. Because they understood it's talking about men of abnormal size. Now the question might be asked here, if they are a product of the 
the second explanation we gave, okay, we said the first one was fallen angels took so completely human form that they were able to do this. The second one was they indwelt men, okay, and possessed them and did this. If we go to the second explanation, you might ask the question, well, how, you know, how would this result in their children being giants, okay? If the angels have indwelt these men and had, you know, relations with women, how would that result in giants? How would that be the result of this union? Well, Morris had a really good explanation for this. He pointed out the fact, and I'm reading from him, he said there's factors for large physical stature apparently, sorry, factors for large physical stature apparently have resided from the beginning in the created gene pool of the human population. Their emergence as frequent or dominant characteristics in a specific population might result by chance in a small inbreeding population or else might result by design in the case of controlled manipulation of the genes by breeders understanding enough about the genetic process to do this. What he's saying there is he points out the fact that we have modern scientists who understand genes, understand the gene pool, and they genetically engineer plants, they genetically engineer animals to pick and choose the characteristics that they want. This is what our human scientists are doing right now, picking and choosing characteristics they want, making things resistant to this disease and to that. We're doing it. Scientists, human scientists, are doing this. And they'd like to do it to humans as well. Pick eye colour, pick sex, pick all these things, okay? They talk about this. They want to do this. If human scientists are able to do this, there is no reason why fallen angels were not able to accomplish something similar with mankind. There's no reason why they could not manipulate the gene pool to produce the offspring they wanted to accomplish this. Morris writes this, he says, Having gained essentially complete control over both the minds and bodies of these pre-flood parents, these fallen sons of God could then, by some genetic manipulation, cause their progeny to become a race of monsters and that's that's the fact they would be able to do this okay we understand if we can do this if humans can manipulate this angels without doubt okay have the knowledge the capacity to do these kind of things but the point is however way you want to look at it the point is the result was that their offspring were these giants these mighty men of old these men of renown monster in size and monster in character Okay, that was the result of this wickedness, of this sin. It was, it was a corruption of the gene pool, a corruption of mankind seeking to stop God's plan, stop God's will. Now, of course, you might say, well, giants have existed since the flood. You know, God locked up these angels for this wickedness, for this great sin that they did here. So how then have angels existed since the flood, after Genesis 6? As I said earlier, ready, ready for Morris, the giant gene is actually still in the genes. We can still, it happens. It's a reality. Okay? It's part of our gene. It's part of our makeup. Okay? And so after this, yes, it arose at times, and we have Goliath, and we have the other giants who arose. 
But these ones in Genesis 6 are unique. And they are unique, why? Because of the demonic influence involved in bringing them about. See, as we saw earlier, God, he dealt with these fallen angels for their actions. Okay, God dealt with them. Jude and Second Peter talk about that. God put them in chains awaiting judgment because of this wicked act that they did here in Genesis chapter 6. And last thing, just very quickly, I want to talk about the phrase there at the end of the verse. It says, uh, verse 4, it says, The same became mighty men which were of old mighty, uh, sorry, men of renown. That phrase, mighty men of old, men of renown, that suggests to us that the exploits of these giants, of their violence and of their strength, made them famous in song and fable in the ages after the flood. Okay, you can imagine, Noah and his sons, they have seen these giants. They've witnessed what they can do. And they have passed it down to their sons and daughters. They've told them about these things. They've passed on knowledge of these giants. And so they become famous, mighty men of old, men of renown. Become famous in song, in fable. You see, to, to rebellious men of later times, they're revered as great heroes. But in God's sight, they're merely ungodly men of violence and evil. And I say that because, you now if we look at mythology, what do you see? We see stories about demigods, don't we? Half man, half God. We see these stories, okay, in Greek mythology and, and Roman mythology and other places. We see these stories. Where do these stories come from? Well, more than likely, they come from Genesis chapter 6. And these these giants, these monsters that were around and the knowledge has been passed on and distorted over the ages, over the years to the point where you get these myths, these mythology in place. Helps us understand where these things come from, doesn't it? And God's word probably is the foundation of it, originally. You know, this demonic influence here in chapter 6, attempting to corrupt the gene pool, so corrupt Humanity, in combination also with the materialism, the ungodliness of civilization, all of this means that God's patience has finally run out. God's long suffering has come to an end, and God is now going to, as we'll see next week, destroy the earth with a flood. And only saves, will only Noah and his family survive, because only Noah and his family, in faith, get upon the ark. The godly remnant is preserved through Noah and his family. You know, I just want to close tonight with this, this point. You know, isn't it, isn't it wonderful to know that no matter what Satan tries, no matter what Satan tries, he cannot stop God's plans. You realize that? He, stopped, he tried with Cain. You know, Cain was one influence and getting Cain to kill his brother and all the sin and wickedness that evolved there. He tries now with, in Genesis 6 with these angels corrupting the gene pool, corrupting humanity. But none of that could stop God's plan, could it? God wiped it out and God started again with Noah and his family. The, the genes, uh, the, the promised seed story was preserved. You see, Satan can't stop God. God's plan is going to happen. Christ came. Christ came and died upon the cross for us. As God said, Satan couldn't stop it. And the same is true today. God is still in control. God is still on the throne. And that's a, a wonderful thing for us to remember. You see, no matter how bad the earth gets, and it is getting bad, isn't it? Okay, We look around and things just seem to be 
deteriorating, going from worse to worse every day. But no matter how bad it gets, God is still in control and in His perfect timing, He will come again. He will take us home to be with Him if we know Him as our Saviour. And He will deal with the wickedness of this earth. I think that's a glorious truth, to know that our God will be victorious. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word this evening. And Lord, I know this is a difficult passage, and Lord, I pray that this evening I've done justice to it. And Lord, we've gained some understanding of this, this text, understanding of the, the truths contained therein. Lord, may you help us to accept by faith the things recorded therein. And Lord, understand that no matter what Satan tries, no matter what plans he puts in place, Lord, you are on the throne, you are in control, and we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, may we remember these things, ponder upon these things as we depart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.